This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Welcome, Associate Professor of Literature in the Department of Africana Studies at Stony Brook University. Let me welcome the one and only Dr. Tracy Walters. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Longtime listener, first-time guest. So yes. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. It is a pleasure to see you. It's a pleasure to see you. I'm loving this topic. We were talking off mic about the potential to do more uh, because, you know, as, as I'm, I'm listening to all of these things happening around critical race theory, I'm realizing that n- not only are we uh, miseducated, uh, but now there's, there's probably always been a willful burying of some truths. So uh, talk about the impetus for you doing Not Your Mother's Mammy. It came to me actually probably late in the 1980s when I wasn't even a student yet, wasn't even thinking about graduate school. Um, Coming from the UK over to America, moving to Brooklyn, New York, I was really perplexed to see the amount of Caribbean women working as nannies, right? Pushing strollers with babies that didn't match. And it was just a weird thing for me to see. I wasn't used to, you know, I wasn't accustomed to seeing that in the UK. And it really bothered me, but I didn't know why. I didn't truly understand the history of America and racism and slavery and that transition from working on the plantation to then indentured servitude and so on. And I didn't understand that working as a domestic was one of the few jobs available to women. I couldn't understand why Caribbean women had taken up this occupation. It stayed with me for a long time. And after my first book, which was about the classics and the black representation in classical mythology and very, you know, very erudite, I was looking to work on a project that had some meaning, it was a little bit more personal to me. And knowing that there were women in my family who had done this work from, coming from the Caribbean, I was compelled to do it. And initially I embarked on this kind of anthropological study with these oral histories, but then very quickly understood that that was outside of my realm of um, expertise and instead wanted to find a way to allow the women to still speak for themselves, but to do so through media. And the the wonderful portrait on the front of my book, which is done by an amazing South African artist, Mary Sabandi called I Am A Lady, Mm. shows this woman in a, uh, a gown, a Victorian gown, and there's a Superman insignia on the front and it's just royal blue gown, which is beautiful. But on top of that, you also see the maid's uniform. And something about that juxtaposition was really interesting to me. And that struck the nerve. That was kind of the light bulb moment that led me to think about artists who were either formerly domestic workers themselves or relatives or children of domestic workers. And wanted to think about how they spoke about their own experience. And so it was a labor of love, I'll tell you. It took 10 years you know, like another having a third child, but um, it's a it's a interdisciplinary study. I look at the women from uh, the continent of Africa, the United States, the Caribbean, uh, France. So it's uh, quite comprehensive. Dr. Walters, you know, for many of us, and, and Viola Davis talks about it. Like, if she had to do it over again, she wouldn't have played in the help. Uh, we think about Mammy, the first Mammy, won an Oscar. Heidi McDaniel, and it, it it defined her career, but it wasn't who she was, but that's who she would always be known as, Mammy. And in many ways also, uh, you know, the the young lady, Butterfly McQueen, that, that 
you know, uh, played in Gone with the Wind as well. Mm -hmm. I was talking recently with my mother because a narrative we're about to to embark on this genealogy uh, space, how we talk to our elders, how we uh, extract these stories from our elders. And I was talking to my mother and she was talking about her grandmother because her, her great-grandmother, actually. Her grandmother died in childbirth. So when she would go visit her father in Somerville, South Carolina, he was working all day. So she would stay with her great-grandmother, who she called Nin. And she said Nin would go to work up to the big house. So I said, wait a minute. Where did she... She stayed on the... Basically, she was on a plantation. And you think about it, you know, my mother was born in the 1940s. Her her father was born in the 19-teens. His mother died in childbirth. She was born in the 1800s. Her great-grandmother probably was born into bondage and probably was working in the same house that generations of her family had worked in, in bondage. And it never dawned on my mother that she was staying literally on a plantation in in a cabin down from the big house where her great grandmother would go to work every day. And it was stunning to me because that history is not so far from us, but we don't talk about it because it's shameful. Yeah. And I think the way the media represents these women is kind of silenced in the background. You think about Mad Men, if you're anyone who watched Mad Men, that made never, she spoke about twice in the whole, whole film. You think about the help and the way that that, book and then film are supposed to give voice to these black women in actuality it misrepresented them it dehumanized them um unfortunately we had to wait until we got roma a film about an indigenous latin american woman before uh mainstream was willing to really reconsider rethink the way that we consider women black women in particular who work um in domestic servitude it is a way of life. It is a means of survival. These women have dignity. These women are radical. They resist their oppression and efforts from the women with, uh, who employ them to demean them. And it becomes this power struggle, right? The white women, mostly white women, um, who employ domestic workers, well, thinking back through after slavery and going up through the 1940s, 1970s-ish, let's say. These white women had very little power, right? They had dominion over their children and their domestic chores, which they didn't want to do, right? Um, when they entered the workforce and you know, were able to you know, enter the various professions, it's, it's women of color who had to take over those household duties. And these white women who felt, even though they were in the workforce, they still knew and understood their positionality within society. So they could come back to their home, to the domestic sphere, and then exercise their agency, their power over black women. But these black women weren't stupid. And neither were they, um, neither were they uh, um, willing to be infantilized. So in one of my chapters, I talk about the, the author, Alice Childress, who's mostly known as a playwright. And Alice Childress writes about how these white women would try to do things like add an extra shirt for them to wash and try to undercut their salary as though black women couldn't add. And so what black women might do is instead of directly confronting the maid, they just wouldn't wash it. And the next day the woman would say, oh, you forgot a shirt. And she might say, oh, no, I didn't. I didn't forget the shirt. She wouldn't say why she left it. She might just say, I didn't. 
So there's this confrontation that's being had, but not in a direct way, not always. Now, Alice Childress, who did work as a maid, was very direct. And when white women would insult her, she would insult them right back. So let's say um, a white woman invited a friend for tea and they felt that it was um, necessary to move their pocketbook. Alice Childress would do the same thing. When she got up to go into another room, she would take one of something that was important to her to make the statement that my things are just as important as your things. You're not above me because I clean your home. So there were ways in which black women could be subversive in the work, in, in, in the household. And these are not stories that are really shown in media. We just see either the silenced woman in the background who's saying nothing, or women who engage in ridiculous acts as we saw in The Help, which are really demeaning, especially, you know, obviously I'm referencing the mini character. Right, who, who made the pie, which we all were very uh, exactly. pleased that, uh, that she was able to deliver the pie. But you're right, it is demeaning to, to have to do that to, or to feel you need to do that to, to make a point. It, it actually demeans you in the process, exactly. which we don't talk about because exactly. we're in such a superficial upside down world right now that we don't even know that our revenge uh, is best served through success. 866-801-8255 through the accomplishments. Dr. Walters is here. Dr. Tracy with an E. Tracy Walters. Um, give me a story from the book and the book is called Not Your Mother's Mammy that we would be surprised about. Tell me a story. I think uh, one of my favorite stories comes um, comes in the chapter, uh, deals with the idea of being like family. And so I can say for myself, when it was time for me to go to work and my husband is an entertainer, he's off on the road, I had to hire someone. And I really did feel as though, oh, this person is a member of our family. But then, you know, when you're, when you're realistic about it, you realize no matter how well you treat this person, they are still your employee. And you can't take it for granted that because they're empl your employee and they are very close with your children, they want to spend their weekends at your children's birthday parties and doing things off hours, right? So uh, very quickly, I understood that they're not family. They are, you know, you, you form a great relationship with them, but they are your, your employee. So in the book, I discuss um, this woman um, who was employed for many, many, over 20 years. She's employed with a family, a prominent political family in Washington, D.C., who keep insisting she's like family. But when the family moves into a condominium, they downsize. The husband goes through great lengths to ensure that there's a service entrance for her uh, to the extent that he reroutes the plumbing in the condominium so that the, a door can be cut in where the original bathroom was, so that can be her entrance. And this woman, um, for whatever reason, she, well, I know the reason, she keeps all of the pictures of the family members along with her maid's uniform and she has it hanging up on display. And um, when a journalist goes to her home and she's really curious as to why she would keep uh, her maid's uniform and she says she keeps it as a reminder of how much she hated those people. I think that that's just a, a wonderful story. You know, it's interesting to me, even when we think about bondage, um, there are many pictures of African women breastfeeding white babies. Oh. There are many images of, you know, even in the help, you know, they want to have a whole new bathroom for the, the quote unquote maids, but they're cleaning your bathroom. They're washing your drawers. They're clean. You know, they're making your, they're good enough to clean your house. 
You're, they're good enough to cook your food, to suckle your babies, but you don't want them to use your bathroom. It's an insanity when you think about, you know, the levels of degradation people go to through to 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 show you you're not like me. But the very thing that you entrust, and that's the thing that bothers me too. I, you know, I work at Hunter College, and the Upper East Side is notorious for having, you know, the black yeah. nannies and the and the white children, and it's like a throwback to me. It makes, it really chaps my ass to see it. I know people have to eat and they have to work, but there's this like notion, like, you know, they're part of the family and that, that they're, you know, but they're not, you know, and, and, and not just that we know that they're not part, like how you said, I know that that person's not part of the family, but they know it too. And it's, and it's a throwback to a time when they had dominance over our bodies. And it's just disgusting. The things on that indeed two things on that one would be um just to let people know that there were health ordinances in the 1930s uh, and 40s that there was actual legislation put into place to ensure that black women could produce health cards to ensure and to validate their cleanliness and alice childress talks about this as well um how an employer asks her to produce her health card and she challenges her and says well where's your health card you want me to enter into your home and you want to ensure that I'm clean. How do I know you're clean? It is just a ridiculous double standard, but it also speaks to the pathology of, of, of white people and the ways in which they um, try to, you know, consistently um, establish this hierarchy, right? And all of these stereotypes and myths about cleanliness um, that are attached to whiteness when we know that the first people who developed shampoo and soap and did not come from the West, right? Um, and so it's, it's laughable, but it's a, a myth that has been projected and promoted. You think about um, back in the um, 1800s when, when Europeans began to use soap and the, and the imagery, they used black bodies uh, for, for soap. Uh, as a way to, you know, your cleanliness, you, 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 do, you don't want to look dark, you don't, you don't want to look black, but we'll use the imagery of blackness on the packaging, right, so that you can tr transition to whiteness. I recall a couple of years ago, Dove Soap tried that again, yes. due to, I don't know if you remember, and due to social media that, that you know, oh. that turned out badly for them. <laughs> so it, 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 it is a, an, an insult, um, but we rise above it. Right. Do when we COVID though? Hit. Do we though? I started off today talking because uh, John Oliver had this amazing piece on black mm -hmm. hair uh, on HBO, mm -hmm. and you know my father talks about growing up and being teased because he, he and his brother were called the Gold Dust Twins. You talk about the packaging. The Gold Dust was a was a washing uh, powder, and they had two little black boys on the on the cover. My father was very dark skinned growing up to the point where it it, it bothered him. He would put ultra skin toning which is skin bleaching on his ears because he thought, you know, and it was a ritual every morning he would put to make sure his ears weren't too black. Like, what is that? Like, but in his mind, you know, and I imagine that he married my light skin to the mother. I imagine <laughs> that he found the lightest woman he could marry because he right. didn't want his children to suffer what he did, you know? And so I, I carry that for him. You know, and I try to act as dark skin as possible every day, but um, in, in honor of him. But I, I feel like, you know, that that it, and, and at the same time, he loved himself. And at the same time, he was very, you know, so there's this this tug of war going on among us about our worthiness around these notions of cleanliness. Black people. Drew McCaskill has been on the show many times. He's my co-host on Tuesdays. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how we over index 
in mm. washing solutions, soap, perfumes, all of these things to show the world that we, if you go into a black person's house and look in their cabinet, flood it with all kind of cleaning products because we are hypersensitive to this cleanliness thing as if as if we didn't invent bathing because we did Africans aqueducts bathing autopsies brushing our teeth all of that we were doing way before anybody when they were putting lipstick over their funk we were brushing our teeth right well I, I I agree with you to some extent but I do you know culturally right culturally um for those of us who uh, have a, a blended social circle, we will remember going to friends' homes and bringing our washcloth with us, if you know what I mean, right? You go into certain spaces, they're looking like, what's that, washcloth? Or getting up the next morning and you're the only one bathing, you're the only one asking, you know, where's the towel, where's the toothbrush? And everybody else seems like, oh, you're, you're bathing? Oh, it's Saturday, don't worry about it, you know? It's not, not Monday. Um, I think culturally, and I come from a Caribbean background. And, tell me, and tell me your background. Is, tell me your background. So that, my parents crazy. are from, yeah, my parents um, both were from Jamaica. They both they migrated to the UK in the 1960s and 70s. And I was born Part in Part of that Windrush? Yes, definitely. Post, little little post-Windrush uh, for my father, at least. So I, I, I know that Christianity plays a role in this, right, in terms of the Westernization and the way that Black people think, right? Cleanliness is next to godliness and that's heavily ingrained in black people as well of the diaspora or the global majority as you say and so this definitely plays a role in the ways in which we um come to cleanliness and the body and and perfuming um but to be clean is i don't think necessarily in the consciousness of individuals that it, it's a, a kind of a um, a regurgitation, a denial of what they're seeing in the media in terms of the the messages that are sent. I don't think it's a conscious thing at all. Um, definitely, I would say, to reinforce my point, I think it definitely comes from that religious stuff. But oh, again, a lot of that is fed through the West. So I agree with you, but I think it stems, you know, yeah. I, I think it's subconscious, which is why, you know, once we know better, we should do better, right? Once we're awakened to uh, what has been done, uh, Dr. Walters, what, when did you get radicalized? <laughs> <laughs> well, growing up in England, I knew nothing. I knew um, Tabla Rasa. I knew Bob Marley, right, because, you know, Jamaican. I knew uh, Marcus Garvey, because not, not enough, though. Knew the name. was enough to plant a seed. Not enough. I came to America, came knowing not a thing. I knew Martin Luther King was somebody. I'd seen Roots, but didn't truly understand. I was like eight or nine, I think, at the time. Um, and I went to work for a black, a small independent owned magazine called About Time Magazine, a wonderful magazine run by Carolyn and Jim Blunt. I don't think it's in, uh, it's uh, being published anymore. But working for this small mom and pop operation exposed me to everybody, anybody who was relevant at the time, or actually not even relevant. And that led me to Howard University, the Mecca. And at Howard, it was just mind blowing. I studied under the best professors and I was, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates talks about Howard as a Mecca. And for me, it just opened my eyes to the black experience in a way that I'd never, you know, I'd never known. My thinking was if I needed to learn about black culture, you know, that was the best, best place to go. Having said that though, um, a lot of my, I, I came from the literature uh, program and so, we had to do a lot of like 18th century, 19th century British. 
Um, but when I got into my later uh, part of the program, this is when I was introduced to the Panthers and I had a wonderful professor by the name of Eleanor Trailer who knew everyone. She knew the Baldwins. I went to James Baldwin's house and she introduced us to Nika Giovanni and Sonia Sanchez and Hakeem Adabuti and Amiri Baraka and all, all these people came to our classes with this masterclass for a semester. And that just kind of, you know, opened my eyes to um, the politics of this nation and systemic racism. And that led me to go on to establish my career in a Black Studies department and to become chair of that department. And so um, it's been a wild ride, but it's, um, I live in my truth and tuning into people like you and Joe Madison and watching Abby Phillips and CNN and doing my own reading and Greg Carr. Um, it's just, uh, you know, I'm growing every day. Well, you also have a, uh, a podcast called Black Girls with Accents. Uh, so who is it? There another, there's another black woman with you yes. that has an accent. What's her accent? <laughs> yes, she does. Um, uh, my co-host is uh, named Norma Stanton or Norma Harris Stanton. And um, Norma Stanton, um, she is from Amsterdam. Well, she was raised in Suriname and then moved to Amsterdam. And so we both bring these very unique perspectives. I love, I love Let me it. correct her name. Her name is Norma Sanville. I gave her a former married name. She could kill me. She, she won't because she's got to do the podcast with you. So true, that. indeed. Um, true indeed. And, and before I let you go, how did you meet your husband? Your your tall, oh God. sexy how, husband. How cliche. I met him in a club. <laughs> <laughs> and I had did a boyfriend at the time. You had I a boyfriend? Did. I literally, he, had, <laughs> I, he walked past me and I saw his smile. True story. I saw his smile. This was back in 1993. And I was like, oh my God, who is that? And a friend of mine was like, oh, I know him. That's Dean. Dean, just Dean. And we share the same uh, birth months and same interests. And here we go almost 30 years later. So Thir Three zero? Almost, yeah. Are Next you serious? Year, 30 years, yeah. Are you kidding me? All right. So uh, wow. Dean Edwards, uh, he of the many voices is is the husband. Your household is uh, full of conversation, I imagine, because he's a brilliant uh, comic who uh, brings a lot of smarts to his to his impersonation. So uh, Indeed, very well read. OK, yes, he is. Uh, what's your favorite Dean Edwards impersonation? Oh, God, I would have to say um, bloody hell on the spot. <laughs> His Idris Elba is annoying, but I enjoy it. Uh, probably Philip Seymour Hoffman, which a lot of people don't get to hear. What? Yeah, okay. people don't get to hear. They don't I've get never to heard hear his Philip Seymour Hoffman. Have I heard And that? Monique. And hands well, down I heard the Monique. Monique in the Netflix special. He has a lot in his wheelhouse that not everybody gets to hear. We have to hear it all day long, of course, all kinds of voices and noises, but it's made him uh, a lot of money. So it's, it's okay. So it works well. So y'all doing well. Y'all doing well. And then yeah, now mama's yes. bringing home the bacon with the books as well. Yes. Not your mother's mammy is the name of the book. Tracy Walters. Uh, what's your next podcast about? The next podcast, we will actually be, uh, talking about a new book that I have coming up, uh, that deals with foster care in the 19, 70s through 1990s when a lot of West African children went moved uh, when their parents migrated to the UK to study and go to school they often put their children in private foster care it was called farming there's a oh. wonderful movie by the man who was in Oz at a BC can't remember his name yes. but called farming and so it's a book that deals with what happened to these children who were um you know, sent into these homes out into the suburbs or rural areas of England, these black kids and kind of the hell they experienced. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, Y'all can check that out wherever 
uh, podcasts are uh, listened to as well. You can check our podcast out. It is called Black Girls with Accent Accents. We're, of course, going to tweet out a link to Not Your Mother's Mammy, the Black Domestic Worker in Transatlantic Women's Media. And you can follow her. What's your, uh, I didn't see your handle on here. Your, uh, I'm at Tracy Walters or Educated Black Brit. Oh, okay. Well, can I just... Yes. Can I just quickly shout out Kenny in Delaware who's listening? My Soros and Jantara and Nene Skiwi and to Dean and my and my kids. Did you say Nene Skiwi? Uh okay. I did. All I'm right. Skiwi. Yeah, Sorry. all right. All right, Tracy. I'll let you get away with that. <laughs> Dr. Walters.